Dad, Dad the touchy. No, this is where you spoil her. No, this is how it started with your niece. The way that girl would answer back. And then running off to become a model wearing small, small skirts. Mom, she's a fashion designer. She's divorced, that's what she is. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 29, Bend It Like Beckham. The 112-minute version found streaming on HBO Max. If you're using a disc, you might want to leave it behind for a second or two. If you press play on either platform now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Mine took about four seconds to load. Fox Searchlight logo coming up. Gurinder Chada was 42 years old, and it's been a lifetime challenging the norms of what it meant to be British-born in her personal life as a descendant of Sikh immigrants from India and Kenya, and in her professional life as a journalist at the BBC and a director of documentary and feature shorts. Chada co-wrote the script with Gujit Bindra and Paul Burgess. At the Sundance Film Festival in 1999, she got the UK Film Council, British Screen, and Road Movies from Germany to back the film. It was shot in 2001, wrapping production just before 9-11, and it was released in the UK on April 12, 2002. It topped the country box office for three straight weekends before finally being knocked out by About a Boy, but continued to run in theaters there for three months. Fox Searchlight Pictures bought the American distribution rights and released the film on March 12, 2003. For that year, it is listed in the top ten of DVD and VHS sales, as well as DVD and VHS rentals. We open with a televised football game between Manchester United and Anderlecht, the Belgium football club, focusing on Paul Scholes and David Beckham of Man United. This relationship is going to mirror the on-field and off-field relationship between Jasminder and Jules. Manchester United's primary field sponsor is Vodafone, which you can see on the front of their jerseys. The European and North African communications conglomerate primarily known for their cell phone business. This opening, therefore, hammers hard on relationships and communication, just as it does on the sport of soccer or football. But if we look closer at the screen, we see we've been had. The scoring goal was not kicked by David Beckham, but by Jess Bamra, our British protagonist. And here at the BBC Sports Desk, we see three prominent white, traditionally conservative football pundits talk about how great Jess is. We suspect now, of course, that what we are watching is not real, but a dream. Jess's dream, as intergender football is not allowed, not in European professional leagues, not anywhere. And white praise of athletes of color anywhere in the world is rare praise. The opening ends with Jess's mother stopping the progressive attitude of the pundits with her old line conservative Sikh views of what an Indian girl should and should not be doing, echoing the director's own mother. Jess's room proudly displays the essence, not of an Indian upbringing, but of a British one. Beckham's Man U jersey, displaying the lucky number seven, is hanging beside a poster of his time on the England national team. On it, 
we also see a soccer ball mimicking a globe. And we're reminded that not too long ago, the sun never set on the British Empire. We're almost a third of the Earth's population in the year 2000, including Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, and not to mention Kenyans, including Chada herself, were born. The third scene moves into the most traditional place in the Indian household, the kitchen, the place where Chada herself said in interviews she saw as a restrictive environment in her household, where she was expected to work hard to serve the men who lounged and contributed nothing in the next room. When Jess and her sister, Pinky, chide her mother in unison, her mother's distinctive Indian accent is in direct contrast to her daughter's very clear English accent. Therefore, if you spoke to these women on the phone with names like Jess and Pinky, you would not even know that they were born, or their families weren't born, in Britain. The shopping spree you see here continues the contrast in the family centers on Jess and Pinky. Jess does not like the traditional Indian dress, and Pinky's friends are diverse and, dare we say, Western, and Jess feels out of place in a shoe store talking to girls bearing their cleavage, talking about facials while Jess is dressed in Adidas and sports attire. Here we enter another cultural divide in the West between the feminine expectations of women and the athletic aesthetic which is in stark contrast here, play for comedy, lacking a more nuanced view, which we see later. Just down the street, we see this aesthetic played out when Jules is shopping for underwear with her mother nearby. Her mother seems to be obsessed with pumps in bras engineered to give women more cleavage. This scene foretells the real boondoggle in the media when Kira Knightley's image for a film adaptation of King Arthur was altered to give her well-known bust line, a ridiculous enhancement that fans instantly satirized and called out as misogynist and exploitive contortion of her image. Knightley later posed topless in Vogue magazine to further emphasize how sexism wasn't just exploitive in the film industry, it was also just plain fucking stupid. The scene is also reminiscent of Molly Ringwald's famous Feel Up in 16 Candles, Another scene of women describing to women how they look, or in this case, how they should look. Chada, however, is emphasizing breasts for a different reason than men do. While for them, they are something to be oogled. For women, they are integral to their nature as a human being, as being women. Here, Pinky and Jess run into Jess's friend Tony, whom many in the Punjabi circle think is a good match for Jess and Tony's mother. While Tony's mother makes a reference to Pinky's wedding, Pinky uses her jean jacket to hide her own breasts from the conservative old woman. Tony and Jess then discuss how genetics are passed, a very clever way for Chada to pass on the idea that Tony is gay, and thus a marriage between him and Jess is outrageous as it is to think that it's out of the question. Tony is also holding a fruit, a veiled Western reference to his sexuality, and Huge bundle of toilet paper indicating the conversation they're having is a bunch of shit. Next, in the park, we see Jess's athletic skills on full display as she outwits and outperforms an opposition team of four men. When they cannot stop her from scoring, they immediately start making fun of the fact that she is a girl, drawing attention to her breasts. This is the third scene in a row in which breasts are mentioned in the scene, 
Jess doesn't bother to talk back because she does not have to. She uses the soccer ball to injure a male opponent in the testicles, thus emasculating the masculine. In the next scene, Jess talks to her sports god, David Beckham, on the wall as if it is a Sikh shrine, Bubaji. Her father seems not to notice this sanctimonious ritual, probably because he cannot conceive of anyone worshipping anything unorthodox who is inside the Sikh community. But in this scene and in the next, we get something that is lost in most films, but is endearing in Chada's description of a removed Sikh Punjabi community. Mr. Bamra loves his daughter. In fact, he loves both of his daughters very much. He is a family man, and that is one parallel Chada is making between the two families. There is no hate in this family, only misplaced love. Notice also that when her father interrupts Jess's communal experience with Beckham that he uses the proper English. To whom are you talking? Rather than Pinky's first-generation slang, Jess and her father help prepare the house for what in the West we would call the rehearsal dinner, which traditionally happens the night before the wedding. The establishing shot of the middle-class house the bombers are residing in reveals a plane moving from the left to the right, presumably landing at Heathrow Airport, where Jess's dad works as a pilot. This is the direction the family is in, a conservative direction, at least for the Indian community. This is something like a proud tradition in the Sikh community. Sikhs have faithfully served the British Empire with pride and ruthlessness for 200 years, and in both film and in real life, they continue to represent law and order. Mr. Bomber represents his rigid conservativeness in his family and a middle-class aesthetic. At the dinner, Jess has put up with her cousins who talk about the blue-collar jobs they have at Rolls-Royce and aunts who pester her to find a man with a good job and a good engine. The next day in the park, as Pinky and her friends oogle the boys taking off their shirts during a soccer match, Jess can be seen in Beckham's Manchester United jersey, marked on the front with their main sponsor, Vodafone, one of the largest cell phone carriers in Europe and the Middle East. This carries with it the communication theme following this scene when everyone checks their cell phone when one rings off. This does more to show how middle-class Indian society has become in Britain by this time. It contrasts the lack of communication the same community is having or not having with their very British children. Round patties. In the park, Pinky and her friends talk like Western girls. But when their friends start picking on Jess's status as a virgin, Pinky defends her sister, saying, well, at least she hasn't slept with half of Hunslow, the neighborhood the bombers live in just east of Heathrow Airport. Jules is on the bench across in the park, marked as a gora, Punjabi slang for a person with white skin. This is the case in Britain, but when used in India, Gora's implication is also foreigner. So Jules is the invader in this scene, not the Punjabis. When Jules extends to Jess a tryout for a girls' soccer team in Hunslow, the boys immediately start razzing their star player. Jules responds with a masturbating gesture, indicating 
that they are all a bunch of jerk-offs. Jules is also wearing a shirt that has the year 1969 on it, a sexual reference in the English world. We are going to go back to the sports bra conversation between Jules and her mother while this scene plays out. That starts taking place very noticeably in front of a model that has purple ace underwear placed in the foreground shot as if emphasizing the vaginal. Paula, Jess's mother, specifically says about breasts, it's not how they look, it's how they make you feel, implying that breasts make her feel like a woman. And this is something that she feels Jules lacks, when in fact... This is nothing of the sort. It's not like Jules feels any less of a woman because she wears a sports bra or that she has small breasts. In fact, due to the role of sports in her life, it's very likely that Jess is more aware of her breasts than her mother. But while Jess is disinterested in normal bras, her mother seems dismayed and almost fearful of the sports bra, leading us to ask, what is it that scares Mrs. Paxton? Jules, of course, prefers sports bras. In 1977, entrepreneurial inventor Lisa Lindahl, theater costume designer Polly Smith, and Smith's assistant Hinda Schreiber collaborated to stitch together two jock straps to help alleviate pain incurred from straps, chafing, and sore breasts after exercising. This evolved to a one-piece jog bra, which Playtex purchased in 1990, Independently, Dr. Kristen Haycock, hairdresser Rennell Braston, and apparel designer Heidi Fisk all had a hand, or one could say a breast, in designing competitor sports bras, which eventually found their way to the market using several different outlets. The explosion of sports bras came at the 1999 FIFA World's Cup for women in Pasadena, California. After scoring a teeth kick in the penalty shootout to give the United States the win over the People's Republic of China in the final game, forward Brandy Chastain celebrated by spontaneously taking off her jersey and falling to her knees in victory, bearing her sports bra. The image is considered as an iconic photograph of female victory, and it was the first time ever that an international female sports player exposed her bra by removing her top. Chastain found her image and her name in almost every household and later posed nude with other athletes for Sports Illustrated's first ever female athlete issue. But the intent of the scene is clear. Jules' mother regards femininity as something physical and she laments her daughter's sweatpants instead of a skirt, a sports bra that makes her look flat-chested and otherwise androgynous look. Many comments are made throughout the movie about Keira Knightley's short hair. To Paula, femininity is contained within a specific ethnic framework. To be English is to be white, and beautifully so, although there is a long list of English actresses who could have played Jules. Chada cast Knightley in a role because she has this cross-channeling of athletic beauty. In fact, Jules' character mirrors that of Melanie Chisholm, best known in pop music as Mel C., an English singer, songwriter, and DJ who became known as one of the five members of the English pop group Spice Girls. Chisholm and the four other singers were branded by Peter Lorraine, the editor of Top of the Pops magazine, using the singer's costume and image to create names to distinguish them both in the editorial room 
and the reader audience. Apparently, it was too much to ask the editorial staff of a music magazine to remember the actual names of five girls, an act probably repeated quite easily by millions of Englishmen every night in pubs. Chisholm was known for leaping around the stage in a tracksuit, so she was named Sporty Spice. Rather than reject the labels, the Spice Girls embraced it, and the costumes became ever more wild with sequins on Chisholm's tracksuit stripe, and of course she frequently bared her sports bra on stage. And here we are on the soccer pitch of the Hunslow Harriers. The name itself is revealing as the British Harrier is, after the Spitfire, the second most well-known fighter jet of the British Empire. The Harrier is the first fighter jet that could take off vertically, a very important feature for the Empire as the naval fleet was shrinking not only in total size but in ship size. VTOL technology, or vertical takeoff and landing, became essential for Harriers to participate in the Falklands campaign in the First Gulf War. It is an attack plane and a curious mascot for a Punjabi Sikh girl born in London. Here in Jules Garden, for, and for you Americans out there, a backyard in Britain is referred to as a garden, Jules practices her scoring kicks with her soccer-loving dad, but fails to bend it like Beckham, and instead hits a flower pot, something a housewife has to take care of. Yes, this is a symbolic strike. See what Chada did there? And while Paula brings up Jules' breasts yet again, her dad takes Jules' size and underlines what he sees as the benefit in the relationship. No boys. As a father of an athletic daughter, I can certainly understand that. Paula also invokes the great name of Sporty Spice in trying to chastise her daughter. She fails. Indians, let alone Indian girls, don't play on English soccer teams, so we are definitely playing in the otherness territory. Parmenter Nagra finished the film in America, declaring her doubts about the film's eventual success. Quote, who wants to see an Indian girl kicking a football around? Unquote. Knightley agreed by saying, quote, I was personally worried that people would laugh at it, but they were amused or intrigued, or maybe they just wanted to see a bunch of girls run around in shorts, unquote. Both Nagra and Knightley are expressing the masculine point of view. Nagra is defining the racist view, and Knightley is expressing the sexist view. It reminds me of every tennis match that Anna Kornikova played. She'd warm up in a jacket, and then when she took it off the jacket, the crowd clapped. They didn't come to see the sport. They came to see her. Why do men repeatedly watch the entire Friday the 13th franchise? Because they genuinely find it scary, or are they waiting for Kristen Baker to get into the lagoon naked? I think we all know the answer. Bend It Like Beckham was shot in eight weeks for $4.5 million, but in one year it grossed $50 million outside the United States. Distribution in the domestic market in the States was rolled out cautiously over the span of a month, but it passed $5 million, and in many theaters it earned twice or three times the headliner. This is important because studios love small films that earn big, like My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Studios and distributors will take that money all day long. It was this slow roll in theaters all across the country which prepared an American audience for Knightley's big screen explosion the following year in Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Why Nagra did not also become a huge star is left for the audience to ponder will 
go down that road later. Perhaps it had something to do with the color of her skin. The Hounslow Harrier jersey has a soccer ball on the logo, but it also looks like the intake of a jet engine. This reinforces the theme on the Harriers we discussed earlier. In Jess's first practice, we learned that she is reticent to run around in shorts because she has a bad scar on her leg from a childhood accident involving hot beans and toast. This may tell us why she has an aversion to cooking, not just in traditional Punjabi meals, but cooking at all. Her mother seems oblivious to this point. Why was Jess trying to cook hot beans and toast instead of aloo gabi or any type of curry? Perhaps it is because, as a Brit, she prefers the cuisine of her native country. This reinforces the fact that despite her color or her background or her religion, Jess is, in fact, a Brit. You'll see this argument and bend it like Becca mirror in British society today. Even with the latest immigration problems in Europe, you see African immigrants to Ukraine turned away at the border to Poland because they're not recognized by the refugee status, but because Poland or Romania or Hungary in particular treats dark-skinned refugees differently than they do white refugees, regardless of the status of their passports. The citizenship status of the UK then is determined as much by your skin color as it is where you were born, or in the case of naturalized citizens, where your parents were born. Cue the training montage, Rocky, an old idea that dates back to 1975 with a remix of Tom Jones' immortal British classic, She's a Lady, further introducing the feminine into the masculine tradition of sports. This is particularly true of Knightley, who spends most of her time running around in a sports bra. The montage even opens with Jess bending the ball around the wall to score, which is where we get the title of the film, a stand-in later. When Jess is denigrated by Tony's friends in the park, she immediately shows them why she is on a team, but they aren't. She even taunts them like a pro player, using self-references as to her skills, oh, the skills. When the boys start finally treating Jess as an equal, lifting her up and playing with her like one of their own, her mother comes out of the bushes and puts a stop to the gender-bending madness. Thus, we are thrust into one of the funniest and important scenes of the film when Jess confronts her parents about her desire to play semi-pro soccer. In a hysterical back and forth, you can see East and West battle out the different gender expectations between the generations. The Bombers expect Jess to behave a certain way simply because that was the way they were raised and every American of every generation should certainly be able to empathize with that. Along with this is the cultural Punjabi standard of judging someone by every family member's behavior. Thus, they are afraid that Jess's soccer career could draw shame on the family at a critical time, namely the marriage of her sister Pinky. This is tantamount to the absurd in Western culture, except for the super elite. Everyone has that one drunk brother or a slutty sister, or a racist uncle that everyone agrees is difficult to deal with. Look at all the shade thrown on Joe Biden's son. But to use that relative as a benchmark against an entire family is something most Americans can't identify with. And as with most everything in Mrs. Bomber's understanding, Jess's behavior is directly linked to her ability to cook traditional Punjabi food including doll. 
Chara admitted this when she pushed the film in America, quote, the most important thing to my mom was that I learned how to cook Indian food, but I refused, unquote, Chada said, who used her mother and her aunts in extras in the film, quote, I'd say what you don't realize, mom, is that you're oppressed. And she'd say, when you get married and can't cook, you tell your mother-in-law that she's oppressed because I'm the one who's going to get a bad name, not you, unquote. This is eerily similar to how Mrs. Bomber characterizes how the Punjabi community will see Jess. Chada's brilliant writing and directing of this scene crosses these gender and cultural standards with comedy. In a scene that is confrontational and finds humor in its unfair one-sided outcome. And this scene as a microcosm is why the film is so powerful. The scene in which she complains about her parental imposed soccer band to Tony is just as important. Jess resents the fact that Pinky dresses more sexy, talks more Western, and in fact has been having a secret sexual relationship with her fiance for years. But it's Jess that's being punished for playing a sport. Jess compares her dress and style to Pinky, and although we shouldn't judge Pinky any differently than we do Jess, we can't help but see Jess Mender's point. Jules, unfortunately, gets labeled a white savior in this scene when she appears out of the blue with a solution, which is to get Jess a job at the same store so she can pretend to be working when, in fact, she's playing soccer. This is how important it is to Jules. Was there no other way to write this scene? Possibly there was, but it shouldn't slow the revelation of the plot to you, which is to get Jess to play soccer. So, back we slide into the sports montage. But we go from training to actual playing, and we pick up the bending of the soccer ball. We had seen them practice earlier. This is an allusion to what is going on in the plot. Jules is bending the rules, but Jess is breaking them. And both of them are headed to another confrontational confrontation with a parental expectation. Jules is not hiding her sports attire from her mother, but Jess is. Note the plane there that's flying from the right, the conservative direction to the left, the liberal direction. And this is the way that Jess is heading. And now might be a good time to quickly go over some very important Sikh facts, like what the fuck is Sikhism? Well, noobs, it starts in Wikipedia. No, I'm just kidding. The 15th century with Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, whose portrait the bombers have in their living room. Nanak was born to a Hindu family near Lahore, India, and was a religious, social, and political reformer. As the first of ten gurus, he is the focal point of Sikh worship, and he contributed to the majority of the religious hymns collected in a sacred scripture called the Guru Granth Sahib, which is written meditation of the Sikh faith. It calls for meditation of the one creator, the unity of all mankind, the dedication of selfless service, striving for social justice for the benefit of prosperity of all, and most importantly for the Bamras, the honest conduct and livelihood of a householder. The Bamras, like an astounding 83% of all Sikhs in Britain, most likely own their own home. Sikhs are monotheistic and historically have come from the Punjab region of the Indian subcontinent. They became so powerful by the 18th century that Sikhs ruled Punjab and today it has a majority Sikh population. 
The word Sikh, S-I-K-H, means disciple or student. And the inference of that is that Sikhs are disciples or students of Guru Nanak. Male Sikhs generally, although not always, have the name Singh, S-I-N-G-H, as their middle name or last name. This includes the former Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, and Harijit Singh Saljan, a former lieutenant colonel in the Canadian Army who served for six years as his nation's defense minister. Male Sikhs, from their initiation, must carry the five Ks on them at all times, the Kesh, or uncut hair underneath their turban, Akara, an iron or steel bracelet, in which you will see on Mr. Bomber's arm, a Kirpan, which is a type of dagger which British law specifically allows outside the knife ban in Britain, a Kachira cotton undergarment, probably the easiest of the five Ks, and the Kanga, or small wooden comb. Notice that most Sikh boys in Bendit like Beckham do not have either a Kesh or a Kirpan. Another plane taking off from left to right, meaning we're going to have another swing into conflict. First, we are shaken by Pinky's sexual encounter with a fiancé in a car at Heathrow. Very Western, probably not her first. Pinky works at Heathrow as an airline check-in girl, a job she most likely got with her father's help. Pinky is going to cover for Jess like a good sister, even though what she thinks Jess is covering up is ultimately stupid. The scene ends with Jess's mother telling Pinky how Jess finally cooked good alu gabi. Once again, Mrs. Bamra is equating being a good Indian with a good Punjabi, with a good Sikh girl, with the ability to cook. The locker room scene is every bit as important as Jess's parents banning her from soccer. Player after player displays their cultural ignorance and asking Jess questions. First, from arranged marriages to the religious and racial hierarchy that existed in the Indian world. No white boys are allowed to date Indian girls. Full stop. The only thing worse than that is to date a black boy. And surefire way to get your parents to initiate an honor killing is to date a Muslim. The lowest rung on the ladder for any category in any Western country. There are many other things to notice about the locker room. If this were directed by a man, you could guess the state of dress the girls would be in. Second, Nagara is exposing her own well-known noticeable sports bra. Third, there is a girl on the team named Mel, a tribute to the aforementioned Spice Girl. Fourth, the crosstalk about sleeping around exposes the divergent views of modern women. Jess doesn't see the point in sleeping around, while others couldn't imagine not sleeping around. This is the freedom that women get from birth control, that rapidly rescinding right in America. Jess Mender comes home to find her mother watching a man watch ankles on TV. This is the extent to which she exposes herself to the sensual. Mrs. Bomber actually watches a lot of TV and a lot of Bollywood, so much so that her husband later complains about it. While Mrs. Bomber sits at home, cooks, sews, and watches Bollywood, her husband is interacting and living in the white man's world all day long and is thus used to more Western culture. Speaking of Western culture, Mrs. Bomber leaves us to make tea for the girls. One could say this is a most British thing to do, but in fact, most tea comes from either China or India. When Jess calls the tournaments and the matches proper, we need to think of this in the English context, meaning real, 
These are real tournaments, proper tournaments, real matches, proper matches, not just a bunch of girls playing in a park. Pinky responds by basically saying that Jess would be prettier if only she wore makeup. This the conservative mother disagrees with. Most makeup in India is geared towards the color scale. Going back to what Mrs. Bomber said to Jess after she found her playing soccer in a park, if you remember, she brought up her skin color and said she was dark from playing in the park all day. This is the very barely mentioned color scale in India, self-imposed but definitely from the introduction of the British in the 17th century. There is today an entire product industry in India geared towards the production, marketing, and selling of products to help Indian women look more white. This practice has the reversed effect. It hides what makes India original and beautiful, like Jess Mender. Next, we are treated to the community tailor coming to fit the girls out for their wedding attire. And what are we dealing with again? Breasts. Like the first scene in the lingerie shop, Chada turns our attention here. Pinky wants hers emphasized on her wedding day, a curious choice, since she is officially off the market then. Jess wants her bust more comfortably loose. And unfortunately, even among women, Jess has to put up with her mother, sister, and family friend making fun of her small breasts. While Jess and Jules go shopping for shoes, a most feminine activity that even her mother approves of, we will take a moment to appreciate Chada's subtle hint drops in her various montages. First, during the training montage, we see Joe slightly return a hug to Jules, whom he acknowledges, but you can tell does not have a special affection for. This is foreshadowing later when Jules falls for Joe, but Joe has no interest in Jules. Jules can't pick this up and unfortunately is hurt when Joe instead finds himself enraptured by the Indian beauty who... I might say, has no skin lightning makeup on. In this montage, we see Jess and Jules go to a pub, and then two things strike out at us. First is that Jules bought Jess a Coke and a bottle. The second is that the patron of the right of Jess is smoking. We notice it, though it's not the center of the frame as we try to see that every day. And the second is almost out of frame, though we catch it with our peripheral cinema vision. Unbeknownst to us, this will come into play immediately when Jess goes home and smells like smoke and is accused of drinking in a pub. Jess is a good girl, but she can't measure up to her sister because she is too masculine. Even though to us, she's not masculine at all. Such is the cultural and gender divide between our communities. Or is it that much of a divide, as we asked the Paxtons? Here's the scene I mentioned before about Mr. Bamra not preferring Indian shoes or Indian shows. In fact, he does not prefer Indian news. He reads The Guardian. He also dresses very Western versus his wife, who dresses more conservatively Indian. The previous montage also reinforces the Britishness of the two girls, deliberately putting them in a very British environment. The first being the tube, the second being the shops around Piccadilly, one of the most remarkable aspects of the Punjabi community in London, and as it is based in West London, a side of town decidedly more posh, than the east side, typically identified as poor and more working class. But the Sikhs and Punjabis and Indians in Britain usually are not lower class, they are middle class. However, if you take a look at the Bamras, they are decidedly not poor, not working class, are very much a middle class British family. And of course, it makes perfect sense that Mr. Bamra hangs his polo shirts in Hunslow because it is near where he works at Heathrow. 
Here we see Joe performing what looks like to be a confusing case of discrimination when Jules and Jess are talking during exercising. Joe makes Jess run laps, but he lets Jules off the hook, and we can't conceive as to why. Joe is going to inspect Jess's foot in what is meant to be a slightly erotic scene, as feet in the East are seen as more fetishistic than in the West. As long as you don't think of what it must smell like after a four-hour soccer practice. And since I brought Joe up, it seems like a good time to talk about Jonathan Rees Myers, who by this film had quite the resume. His first gig was killing Liam Neeson and Michael Collins. Spoilers! And he rode the indie wave in the 90s with the Velvet Gold Mine, Bee Monkey, and tried Hollywood with Ride the Devil. Like a lot of actors these days, he is increasingly finding himself home on streaming platforms. He famously played King Henry VIII, I am, in the HBO Max drama The Tudors. And he also recently completed The Vikings show with the same platform. He is a native of Dublin, Ireland, which will come into play later, and he stays busy with two or three projects a year. Currently has two in post and four in pre. Meyer's biggest hit at the box office was Mission Impossible 3, in which he plays back up to Tom Cruise and unfortunately has not returned. The next horribly brilliant scene, like the locker room scene before it, is specifically engineered to both address and illegitimatize the white majority stereotypes British Indians face from a large part of Britain that largely does not interact with them enough to know better. As the story moves forward, we see both Jess and Joe as people who do not have their parents' hang-ups, however liberal their parents may think themselves to be. Jules' mother's comments, both on Jess's marriage prospects and cultural norms, are immediately sent in reverse as Jess asks her mother to stop embarrassing not Jess, but herself. To show the white community is not immune from this generational disorder, we go straight from a white family making shit up to an Indian family making shit up. As Pinky's future in-laws see Jess Mender supposedly making out with a boy at a bus stop. Of course, it's not a boy. It's a girl. And even if it were, what would there be to be so upset about? One wonders. Especially if it were Kira Knightley, which I can't imagine someone passing her up on the street. One wonders. What one does not wonder in Jess Mender's confrontation with her parents is why they did not immediately think that if Jess Mender was not making out with a boy, was it possible that she was making out with a girl? This notion is so outrageous as to be outside the bounds of the possible in the Punjabi family. In this regard, a daughter playing a soccer game might be unpalatable, but at least it's something that you can discuss in the home. By its omission, Chadra broaches the subject of gay and lesbian relationships, not just between men and women, but between cultures. This shines a very good light on how Tony would be treated in his own community should it come out that he is gay. Now, this is only the beginning of the gay fear starting in Bendit Like Beckham. And although the Bomros have a 
scare of sexuality. They ignore the possibility of homosexuality. Though Tony, like I said, the bomber's nephew is a closeted gay man. He discloses his sexuality later, but it's not dealt with in any meaningful way other than to try to sacrifice himself in a love match with Jess in order to give her the independence that she needs to go play soccer in the States. Note that this independence can only be given to a female by a male. Chadra is making no bones here. The two women accused of being gay are not, Jess and Jules, display the irony and the hypocrisy of older British society. If you play soccer, wear trainers, cut your hair short, then you must be what Pinky later insultingly describes as a dyke. There are several things going on with each character that would take forever to unpack. Jewel's mom, Paula Paxton, while she criticizes her daughter's social choices, chooses to display herself in a traditional feminine qualities, just like Jess Mender's mother. Mrs. Paxton always wears jewelry, shows her cleavage, and wears ridiculous hats to sports games, a very English activity. Meanwhile, one only has to look at Jules, short for Juliet, and more decidedly a male nickname, to laugh at any notion that she is gay. Jules, like many of her roommates, talk about dating and shagging guys, familiar relationships, and the endless topic of clothes. In the nearly two hours of this film, we actually don't really see anything any of the girls on the team do to lead us to believe any of them are gay. And to quote Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with it. Mr. Bomra remarks here how hard it is to bring up Indian children in Britain due to the moral standards being so lax. And this brings up a whole can of worms about cultural standards, cultural diffusion, immigration, you name it. Chada just jumps headlong into it. Just like any immigrant group in any country, the generation that immigrates is going to feel pressured to keep the culture of their native land. And the generation that comes after, whether they are born in any new nation or not, distance themselves from aspects of tradition by virtue of their participation in other domains of their new adoptive culture. In this case... Jess and Pinky are both in and out of British society and Asian culture. It is also important to remember that there is a sub-identity here as well, like Punjabi is to Indian, and the bombers are Sikh. Jess and Pinky live in England, a state in Great Britain, but they don't feel English. They feel British. And as removed as this is for people not familiar with the United Kingdom, this is an essential element of identity in the U.K., Scots identify as Scots and as Brits. Welsh, many of them feel the same. And of course, Northern Irish citizens are going to feel controversially torn between feeling like Brits or feeling like Irish, depending on what side of the political and religious spectrum they're on. But so-called Asian Brits don't feel this pull towards English like other Asians across the UK do. They feel distinctly British not English, perhaps as a result as their experience in the empire. This immigration argument has been going on forever. Growing up in Texas, it was not always easy to listen to Europeans constantly barrage America with opinions on how we were handling our systemic race issues stemming from immigration. There was a high-minded, judgmental attitude coming from not just from the UK, but France as 
well, that America was a racist society, and there's nothing new to that idea. I just think it's it's pretty much what we are. But to see a finger being pointed at you when the pointer has enough problems of their own, that's kind of hard to accept. France and the UK and all of Europe really have had a particularly bloody history when it comes to colonialism, not just in Africa, but all over the fucking world. And to be lectured by a colonial power about Jim Crow or segregation really smacks of the pot in the kettle. The UK, in fact, left the EU over the issue of race immigration. Brexit was a colorization of politics, since it was hinged on the idea that if the UK were out of the EU, they could stop more people like Jessamyn Durbama's family from coming in. Immigration in the States has not been an easy issue to dissect or discuss with anyone. Getting outside criticism from two-faced colonialists doesn't help. Jess's mother, Mrs. Bomra, played lovingly by Sheehan Khan, defines femininity in a Sikh household with domestic tasks. Cooking alu gabi, a meal of cooked cauliflower and potatoes, and shunning any type of male activity, including anything that involves sports. Both Jules and Jess must fight their mothers more than their fathers, as the women become the tools of confining women's roles in society based on the traditions set by the male patriarchy. So Jules can, in a Western framework, dismiss her mother's expectations of her much more easily than Jess can. As she constantly has to negotiate with them what she desires and what they will allow. For instance... Not telling her parents about joining a woman's football team is done to protect her parents and not going behind their back. She also hides her clothes in the garden, protecting them from her fears about her. And what is it that her parents fear? Say it with me. Assimilation to a racist white culture that is responsible for Sikh oppression. This is exactly what Mr. Bomber is describing to Joe right now. Mr. Bomber, we find out, was a really good cricket player. But not only was he not allowed to play Brits in India, he's not even allowed to play Brits in Britain. The fact that he is talking to Joe, an Irishman, about what the Brits find acceptable should not be lost on the viewer. And to bring up another double standard, Jess Minder tries to reason with her father in bringing up Nasser Hussein, the British cricketer and sports commentator. Now, born in Madras, India, Hussein's parents brought him to Britain in 1975 when he was eight years old. He joined the Essex Cricket Club in 1987, though his record in the 1990s was not like David Beckham's noteworthy and jaw-dropping career in soccer. Hussein was seen as one of cricket's best players and in 1999 was elected captain of the England's national cricket team. After having a career as a captain that many opponents saw as the best in England's history, he stepped down after some high-profile mistakes. Today, he is the leading sports commentator on television and is beloved by England all over by cricket fans. Now, I want to take you into what I just said and digest it. Then I want you to listen to what Mrs. Bomber said in the scene when Jasminder brought up Hussein's name. She said Hussein didn't count because he was a Muslim. Now, I want you to think about that line and everything else that it implies. Chadra is not painting a two-dimensional picture portrait of a family here. This is a family that is just as constrained as other white British families. What if we had said, he doesn't count because he's a Sikh, or he doesn't count because he's Indian. In America, what if someone had said, well, he doesn't count because he's black, or the universal one, he doesn't count because he's Native American. And before you get your underwear in a tizzy, I'd like to remind my listeners 
that for the first 85 years of this republic, two-fifths of every black man was literally not counted as one white man. And that is known and established in laws of three-fifths compromise. And of course, you could argue that in many states that are losing the redistricting battle, many, many black Americans are continuing not to count. In the following scene, we see the team, Jess Minder included, fly off to Hamburg, Germany to attend a tournament. While we are still on the race topic, we should remind ourselves of the weight of German history. I have no clue as to whether this was something that Chada intended here. We see Jess Minder attempt to bend the ball like Beckham and fail. Bending the ball, remember, is a metaphor for what Jess has to do with the rules of her family and what those rules mean for her. She and Pinky are constantly bending the rules but not breaking them like Jules can do. Her failure to bend the ball in order to score reflects her the following scene when she attempts to bend the rules of her relationship to Joe and fails. Ultimately, when her father sees the team's coverage in a newspaper, we will see her attempt to bend the rules at home also fail. A trifecta of failure. And as a side note, Pinky is staying in Croydon with cousins as a cover for Jess to go to Germany. That's where Trevor Slattery was toasted as the great King Lear, whoever that is. This is effectively a girl's trip. And we're going to see the girls band together before they spin off against each other. Jules and Jess mainly, mimicking Jess Mender's relationship with her own sister, Pinky. Obviously, this must take place over a man. This is one of the criticisms of the film from the feminist left. Running Bendit like Beckham through the Bechtel test, we see a complicated trial. One, does the film have more than one female? Yes. Two, do they speak to each other? Yes. Three, do they discuss something other than a man? Well, most of the time, yes. So Bend It Like Beckham does pass the Bechtel test until 50 minutes in when the two girls start sniping at each other over a boy. One of the many criticisms of most films is there's not enough roles for women or maybe there's two roles. Typically, they're only there to talk about a man. I have found this to be mostly true just using anecdotal memory. Another criticism of the film is the supposed pretty ugly girl syndrome, which we see here. This is, without a doubt, one of the dumbest story devices in the history of cinema. The most despicable one that I think I've ever seen is 1999's She's All That with Rachel Lee Cook and Freddie Prinze Jr. In this world of make-believe, we are supposed to believe that a thousand or more teenagers at a quote-unquote normal high school are operating under the assumption that Rachel Lee Cook is not attractive in any way. In one of the worst narrative devices in the history of cinema, all this ends when Freddie Prinze Jr. sees Rachel Lee Cook remove her baggy jean overalls to reveal a waif figure in a one-piece bathing suit. Her character also suffers from the Clark Kent syndrome, in which she is judged as an ugly dog with the glasses, but once she removes the glasses, she automatically becomes a runway model. If we're going to ask ourselves to believe this farce, we must first accept the reality of our own biases when it comes to attractive people, and in this case, attractive celebrities. If we are to believe at the 48-minute mark that all of a sudden, Jess Mender has become beautiful, we are, first of all, doing a great disservice to the character, and second of all, doing a great disservice to ourselves as human beings. This 
is just as incredible as thinking that if only we took Kira Knightley's makeup off and made her put on some cheap, transparent glasses, she would not be worthy of our desire. If you believe this, you'll believe anything. And maybe you'll actually like she's all that. In this case, please turn off the podcast and never listen to it again. The ethnically different gender structures come to the surface of the film as the other girls on the football team ask her what some would interpret to be condescending and ignorant questions. Second to the desire to play sports, the marriage theme of the film is actually the most divisive of cultural standards, simply not understood in the West. The idea of a love match and an arranged marriage is alien to civilization, which operated in the same exact way not too long ago. But as the West underwent a gender revolution in politics a century ago and in sexual practices half a century ago, the East still struggles with this type of equality, and Eastern families immigrating to the West are forced to confront and negotiate these differences as they continue to live in countries that do not share their cultural values. While the disconnect may not mean much to Western families, in Eastern communities, it can be a matter of life and death. For instance, and this is not a Sikh Punjabi framework, in 2011, Zanib Shaifa, 19, Sahir Shaifa, 17, and Giti Shaifa, 13, were murdered by their parents in Toronto. Zanib had married a Pakistani man the parents had hated. Shar wore revealing clothing and had boyfriends, and Giti was failing in school and contacting social workers trying to get out of her oppressive home. They were found in the family van, drowned in a canal. Now, this is a Muslim family that immigrated from a Muslim country that has different religious and cultural expectations. So this is not comparable to a Sikh family from an Indian country. But it does show you how cultures from the East and West can collide with dramatic results. Westerners do not seamlessly fit into Eastern societies either. In fact, there are some high-profile arrests and detainments in the East due to their behavior. And behind all of this is a great cultural debate involving immigration that makes everyone uncomfortable. This includes people desperate to have a better life, just like the colonial Americans who fled European oppression. And it includes the majority of race ruling class of any country who feel like cultural norms are being challenged and washed away by an ocean of people who do not look like them. And in Britain, the immigration pushback is so hard. It literally tore the conservative party in half. And on one side, you had people like Boris Johnson and Theresa May who wanted to take Britain out of the EU basically on one single issue. Everything else was just smokescreen. Ignore all the other bullshit. That's just window dressing. What they were really concerned about was immigration, controlling who came into Great Britain and more importantly, what color they were. And on the other side, you had David Cameron, the prime minister, who stood at the assimilation line. This line is basically, look, we all know why you want to come to the West, and that's fine. You don't have to change your skin color and you don't have to leave your entire ethnic culture behind, but you do have to assimilate. You have to adopt the cultural norms of the country that you're immigrating to or else what is the point? And the conservative party couldn't take it. And why? Because that is one cultural norm of all countries breaking under the strain of immigration. 
is at the heart of the matter in this case. And let's face it, it's racism in the United States, in every country of Europe, in Canada, believe it or not, in the People's Republic of China. So in making this very simple film about girls' soccer in London, Chada is discussing this enormous can of worms that is affecting all of us all over the world. Even in this scene, we see a reflection of the struggles Pinky and Jessmender face when Pinky says that it doesn't matter if Joe's Irish or English because to an Indian, they're all the same. Now, I want you to go on any random residential neighborhood in London and Belfast and start knocking on doors and start asking those people if Irish and English people are the same. And that should put it into context for Pinky. After all, Punjab is the same as Manipur or Kerala, right? Is Mumbai the same as Karachi? This is the same type of thinking in America when Caucasians say that all black Americans look alike. This thinking is not new for Americans or Europe or Asia. This is the universality of racism. It is illogical mindset wherever you go. This is something that Joe has experienced in England, to be sure. And although we can expect Jess not to know the difference between Irish and English, Jules sure does, and she doesn't seem to care. In this manner, Jess and Jules are the hope and the future of the film, whereas Pinky is caught dropping gay slurs and making blanket racial statements. The one hole in the film that I see is in the scene where Joe asks Jessminder what her parents are afraid of. She answers him, but she never tells her parents this truth. This is the immigrant dilemma. For how many generations do you expect the culture to hold out? If you are unlucky enough to be Chinese in America, then you know there are generations of Americans who have willingly or not lived within a few square miles of a demarcated territory and told not to assimilate with America. The segregation of African Americans conveys the same message. How far cultural leniency goes generation by generation has as much to do with how the cultural community is treated as it does with how fast the community itself wants to assimilate. In Jules' room, which we have only been to once before, we see a poster of Mia Hamm on the wall. And in the previous scene, Jules shows Jess a video of soccer in America where stadiums full of fans cheered on women's groups with fervor. In one of those videos, American soccer's biggest star, Brandy Chastain, was named and shown alongside her teammates. This symbol of power and teamwork that was so strong in the first scene has now devolved into a bad spat between girls for the dumbest of reasons. Also on her wall are CDs of varying types, but mostly including alternative rock bands from the 1990s, including Scotswoman Shirley Manson's band, Garbage. This strongly describes the issue at hand and the conversation that we're having. And while we should examine the plot of Bend It Like Beckham with a skeptical eye, we should not be too critical of a film that is so outside the norm. This is not a typical movie. Girl meets girl. Girl invites girl on to soccer team. Girl fights parents to be on soccer team. Girl fights girl over guy. Girl makes up and decides the take on the real enemy, the world misogyny of white America. With the exception of the infatuation with 
coach King Henry VIII I am, this film is quite outside the norm, even for a sports film. Compare Bend It Like Beckham to The Replacements, or Remember the Titans, or Moneyball. Even the first version of Fever Pitch does not come close to hand to the intended gender and race message while promoting a positive view of all of the narrative parties. And this leads into another interesting aspect of Bend It Like Beckham. There are no bad guys. The parents are not the enemy. In fact, they are the support structure both girls need. The friends are not the enemy. There is no evil coach like in Varsity Blues. In fact, Joe may be oblivious to a lot of things in the story, but he is able to separate what is good for the team and what is good for his sex life quite well. Although I'm not sure what his reaction is going to be when he finds out just Mender wants to wait until marriage for sex. I'm sure that might be a speed bump. But I don't know. He's Catholic. It may not be. And while we pontificate what the Chinese characters are that we see, we can also tackle the head-on what the Paxtons are dealing with, which is finding out that supposedly their daughter is gay. The traditional Hollywood trope at this point is for the father to be disappointed and the mother to take the side of the daughter. However, Chada spins this on its head. Why isn't it the mother, the creator, and the guardian of the feminine, the one that's upset? And the father, who is historically has been paranoid and threatening of boys, should he be the happy one? That his daughter is staying away from the one thing he absolutely knows about? Dudes just like him? This is the gender switch play that goes on to our expectations and leads us down to the comical, if a more realistic role. After all, how would it look of Mr. Paxton if he were constantly harassing his daughter about not looking feminine, buying her push-up bras, and molesting her in public? And speaking of being gay, we are, one hour in, totally not surprised that Jess Mender's friend Tony comes out of the closet to her. And if you think that being gay is verboten in the West, hold on to your hats, because in India, at this time, 20 years ago, it's worse. And yet, through all of Tony's issues, which must be formidable, he is pushing his problems aside, and he is focusing on his friend Jess. Because Jess Mender's world starts collapsing on her, she rationally does what any of us want to do when we're under threat. She goes back to what she knows. And what she knows is the Indian culture. But when she asks Tony if they can go out, he immediately knows something is wrong. As an aside, I went to Google Maps and I took a look at the Hounslow Central Tube Station where Jules and Jess were. And you'll be relieved to hear that this was filmed on location right next door to the Underground entrance is the Bulstrode Pub, which advertises English and Indian cuisine with live sports. And this cuisine is advertised as, quote, traditional pub food, unquote. Across the street from that is a corner marked simply Asian food supermarket. And it has an odd picture of what looks like a guy stumbling out the front door. This is right around the corner from the Lambton Park, which has three soccer pitches. Word on the street is Melanie C. wanted her song Independence Day for that shopping montage, but... The words didn't fit, so she rewrote them. IMDb can't be wrong, right? 
Now, just a year before Bend It Like Beckham was released in UK theaters, in fact, it was the summer before 9-11, the cities of Oldham, Bradford, and Burnley in northwest England experienced Britain's worst racially charged uprising in the previous 20 years. This time, however, the aggrieved communities were Asian, not black, and shattered the myth that a prevailing multiculturalism had displaced Britain's historical racial tensions during Tony Blair's tenure as prime minister. The most violent incident occurred when a peaceful anti-Nazi League protest meeting held in Bradford's Centenary Square was interrupted by far right-wing Nationalist Front supporters. Allegedly Nationalist Front supporters, I should say, many of whom had gathered at a local pub, started the uprising by confronting and then shouting racial slurs at about 500 mostly Asian protesters. The town was set on fire. About a thousand police officers were deployed. Not to beat back the neo-Nazis, but to stop the protests. Bradford's minority population was majority Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh. And at the turn of the century, their 100,000 community in Bradford was about a quarter of the population. Being British Asian is itself a polyglot term that unfairly gathers together various sects of Muslims, Indians, Sikhs, Kashmiris, Sri Lankans, and Bangladeshi none of whom would ever characterize themselves as being in the same group. But in Britain, they are simply pushed in the same groups for just not being white. And we think of this, we see the Harriers take on the field as a mix-and-match group representing England and what is left of the empire. There are black girls and white girls and brown girls, and one could very easily echo Megan Rapinoe's 2019 World Cup speech, quote, just a shout out to the teammates. We're chilling. We got tea sipping. We got celebrations. We have pink hair and purple hair. We have tattoos and dreadlocks. We got white girls and black girls and everything in between. Straight girls and gay girls. Unquote. If we take Ms. Rapinoe's speech to describe the U.S. women's team in 2019, then we can relate that directly on to the Hanslow Harriers of 2002. And if we say to ourselves, this team should be the diversity we see in London, how can we ask for that diversity to exclude the greater English or at least London community as it represents? And if we recognize this diversity as a must, as a positive good, as something that promotes assimilation and cultural representation, then we must say what is good for the Hounslow Harriers is good for London, is good for England, is good for Britain, and likewise is good for the white community therein and the Indian community therein. There is total equation here. Representation matters. And if you don't understand that, I don't think I can help you. And you might be sitting at home or listening in your car and saying, Jesus Christ, Dylan, I get it. I get diversity. I get cultural representation. I get assimilation. But what the fuck does that really have to do with a movie about girls playing soccer? And to you, my dear audience, I must directly connect Gurinder Chadha to Martin Scorsese, who, in 1993 attacked a hit piece in The New Yorker aimed at attacking Federico Fellini. And really, Fellini's weird and often idiosyncratic and often frustrating body of work, which, quite frankly, the leftist elites that of that prestigious magazine just didn't understand. Now, I get it. I've seen Fellini Satyricon, and I'm in that boat. The first half of eight and a half? Yeah, right. Didn't get it. I went up with a balloon, but the hit piece from, from the New Yorker did more than that. Now, bear with me here. There is a connection. 
Quote, It's not the opinion that I find distressing, unquote, Scorsese lectured in this letter, but the underlying attitude towards artistic expression that is different, difficult, or demanding. Quote, I feel it's a dangerous attitude, limiting and intolerant. And here is where Scorsese levels his aim. Quote, if this is the attitude towards Fellini, one of the old masters, and the most accessible at that, try not to hurt yourself imagining Julietta the experience as accessible, that's beside the point. Quote, imagine what chance new foreign films and filmmakers have in this country. The issue here is not film theory, but cultural diversity and openness. Diversity, Scorsese says, guarantees our cultural survival. Now think about that, folks. Cultural survival, not just of the Indians or the Punjabis, but of the English and the Americans, too. This is why diversity is not a threat to the host nation or to the majority race. Diversity is a cultural survival for everybody. That includes everyone. The master continues, quote, when the world is fragmenting into groups of intolerance, he says, ignorance and hatred Film is a powerful tool to knowledge and to understanding. The attitude that I've been describing, and here is the describing attitude of the New Yorker and their Fellini article. The attitude that I've been describing celebrates ignorance. It also unfortunately confirms the worst fears of European filmmakers. And he starts with the Europeans because obviously Fellini is a European, but look at where he takes us. Quote, is this closed-mindedness something that we want to pass along to future generations? Well, we know the answer to that. And for some of us who voted for Trump, the answer is yes, but we'll move on. Quote, if you accepted the answer is yes, Scorsese continues, then why not take it to its natural progression? Why don't they make movies like ours? Why don't they tell stories like we do? Why don't they dress like we do? Why don't they eat like we do? Why don't they talk like we do? Why don't they think like we do? Why don't they worship like we do? Why don't they look like us? Ultimately, who will decide who we are? This is relevant as we just saw a white player call Jess a pocky. And Joe, the Irishman, told her to get past it. Now, it can't be easy being an Irishman in England, but it has to be worse than to be an Indian, wouldn't you think? Maybe not. Mind you, the Chada made a documentary for the BBC in 1989 called I'm British But. And she describes this British Indian identity and how it gets complicated. Indian girls don't go out with white boys, but do not want to wear saris. So they're picking and choosing how to be British here, or they're picking and choosing how to be Indian here. This is a cultural balancing act that the white majority doesn't have to pay any attention to. So the whole line Jules gives about how you just have to tell your parents no, or you take no for an answer. That's not culturally relevant in Indian Britain. There's a cultural exchange that Jules is not aware of. Now, in the UK, the term Asian commonly describes the ethnicity of peoples originating from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, all the former British colonies from that area of the world. For some Asians, the term British Asian is controversial given Britain's colonial past and the fact that many Asians see themselves as occupying multiple cultural identities at once that could change throughout their lifetime. 
The gradual emergence of British Asian films into the mainstream reflects not only this growing experience of the talent of their practitioners, who are simultaneously British and Asian, but it also has a gradual desegregation of British society, which is slowly forgetting its colonial past. And this is dangerous. Now, we saw Jules arrive in a shirt marked with the number six. And this is one of Jasmine's jersey, right? It's one off from her, the number seven. But it's also half of this suggestive 1969 number that she wore earlier in the film. Joe, of course, is always in a white shirt, unless he's in a white shirt covered by a black jacket. Both of these number changes initiate what Jules and Jess are on the outs. But as we are aware, there is no relationship between the two unless we're reading Jules' emotions over Joe wrong. We saw how the love triangle can be misread in other films like Mildred Pierce. In fact, you're about to see a number of very sly metaphors on screen that Chada is very deliberately designed to address the color scale in both Great Britain and in sports. And we see one of these things here. It's a bit of a joke that Mr. Bomber in the next scene has to keep going up and down the ladder to hang lights for his daughter's wedding celebration. But every time you see him do this, who's with him literally keeping him from falling to his death? It's his daughter. And every time Jess helps him put them up, she has to help him take them down, usually because she has done something to endanger the wedding. Well, we have seen Jess Mender's room before we were giving a close-up of Beckham running, which is reflecting what Jess wants to do right now, run away from the conversation, from her family, from everything. Instead, we're trying to find an escape from the situation, though she focuses on what her family wants and what her family needs. And that is another theme of Bend It Like Beckham. Jess gives and gives and gives, and no one in her family supports her in the only one thing she wants to do. That's quite an indictment against her family, but don't get too pissed off. They'll turn around. Like Jules says here, if you give up football now, what are you going to give up next? And this directly relates to gender equality of the situation. Women cannot afford to give up any rights, because if they do, they'll never get them back, and they're going to lose more. And that's true everywhere. We know exactly what's at stake here for Jess. Her entire future is at stake. What she does for a living, who she marries, how she spends the rest of her life. And right after this is an unbelievable scene that when the first time I saw it, I thought nothing of it. But I sat in a class and watched this with 30 other people. And we did a breakdown of the film and I went through this scene with a, another classmate and I could not believe this is the most loaded scene in the entire movie the teriyaki sauce is the goalkeeper teriyaki as you can see is black the posh French mustard is the defender notice that the posh French mustard is white notice also that salt is the attacker he is also white as Mr. Paxson says here when the ball is played forward the attacker has to be level with the defender that's the salt and the posh French mustard. Get it? The two white players must be the equal. Now, here's a little football wisdom for you. The offside rules mean you cannot receive a pass unless you're behind the defenders when the pass is initiated. You cannot lurk between the defenders and the goalie waiting for a pass. So forwards like salt 
try to time their runs to the goal so they hit top speed when they're at the level with the defenders, which is why when the pass to an empty spot behind the defender starts. So let's run through that again. The white guy is only allowed to attack the black guy if he's at equal level with the other white guy. If he is unequal to the white guy, then he can't attack the black guy. I don't know how much more clear Chata has to be. The entire basis of equality rests on the majority group of any situation understanding the human and civil rights of the minority. The minute the majority starts to admit no rights, admits no responsibility, sees no problem in the discrimination, no matter how small, the minority group is going to lose every time. Nothing explains Cal Rittenhouse more clearly than the offside rule in soccer. Society has decided there is no difference between Rittenhouse and a policeman. And who gets fucked in that situation? Any black man in shooting distance. Take a look at the bomber's living room. Does this look familiar? I think the Dursleys live here. I see a cupboard under the stairs. I'm not sure where Harry is. Absolutely sure of it. Meanwhile, this scene is shot in a rather weird way. Instead of looking at Bubaji, the Sikh guru who is the founder of Sikhism, we, we are Bubaji and we are looking down on the Bamras as if we are judging them. And who do we see? One happy mother, one content father, and one very upset daughter. Now, if I were Bubaji, and I apologize if this is sacrilegious, but I understand that Bubaji was a person, not a saint, not a god. And if I were him and I saw a woman begging me for good grades for her daughter and thanking me for those grades, I would say, you need to beg your daughter for those good grades and you should be thanking her instead. But that's just me. What the fuck do I know about Sikhism? Almost literally nothing. This is a very impressive one shot of Nagra live bending the ball around the laundry, which, if you look, has all of the colors of the Indian flag. Some of the Pakistani, you can guess which color is missing? That's right, white. Keep those colors in your head. You're going to see them later in front of the goalpost. We're in the last half hour, and everything starts moving pretty fast, so I'll try to keep up, but I want to address all the food and the cooking that's going on and the deeper meaning behind it. Food has an enormous importance in every culture, and if you don't think that, just think about how Americans say mom and apple pie, importance of hot dogs at baseball games, and simple things like to say that we, you know, we all love America, blah, blah, blah. What is Israel without unleavened bread? Or Russia without borscht, Poland without pierogies, Canada without poutine, and last but not least, what the fuck would France do without fries? Well, scratch that last one, but you know what I mean. Think about Mrs. Bomber teaching Jess how to cook alu gabi, and notice that when she mixes Punjabi with English and she communicates with her daughters, in fact, throughout this film, many of the Punjabis, like many first and second generation immigrants, they cross their vocabularies as they communicate with one another in two languages. Now, there is absolutely nothing out of place in this language used. What is out of place is the fact that Chada has chosen not to subtitle much of what the Punjabis are saying to each other. This leaves a certain amount of the white audience out of the loop, which feels like the wrong idea. However, how out of the loop do Punjabis feel when they go to an English movie theater? Probably even more so. Therefore, the missing framework goes both ways. In fact, if you go see Steven Spielberg's latest masterpiece, the remake of West Side Story, you'll find he did exactly the same thing with Spanish in the film. Likewise, Spielberg's direction of the Spanish release to the film excluded some of the English translation to Spanish audiences and subtitles. Everyone at some point along the way is a foreigner somewhere, and everyone feels like that sometime, even when being entertained. Chata was two decades ahead of Spielberg. This scene is filled with Chada's family and friends, 
all immigrants to Great Britain and part of that legacy since the end of World War II. Major waves of immigration to Great Britain and part of that legacy. Since the end of World War II, major waves of immigration from the Asian subcontinent, the Caribbean, and Africa have taken place, creating a considerable racist backlash inside Britain. Two distinct communities, Asians and African Caribbeans, were melded together through this common experience as racial minorities in the UK, often living under the threat of poverty and social exclusion. To challenge this racism in the 1960s and 1970s, Many young African-Caribbean and Asian immigrants became politically active, often identifying their political unity under the banner of black. In 1969, Horace Ove, a Trinidadian Brit often described from an African-Asian descent, explored racism in a 1969 documentary called Baldwin's N-Word. Sorry, I'm not going to say it. In the 1980s, Asian filmmakers started the retake film and video collective in 1986 rule. I mean, debuted a kind of English, a documentary that explores unemployment and displacement by a Bangladeshi family living in England. Feature directors soon emerged. Pratyabh Parmer shot saw red in 1988, a drama about an Asian girl who's run over and killed by neo-Nazis. Hanif Qureshi wrote and directed Sammy and Rosie get laid in 1987 and London kill. 1991, Udayan Prasad directed one of his adaptations titled My Son the Fantastic, 1997. Gurinder Chada comes from this outgrowth of talent, and she became part of a movement leading creative artists away from films that only discussed the Asian diaspora or racism and instead chose to focus on a vibrant and diverse community of Asians in Britain. In 1994, Chada directed Baji on the Beach, which subverts the British stereotype of the passive Asian woman by depicting a group of Asian women all very different from each other. And you can see her continue this theme in Bend It Like Beckham. Are you confusing any of the Asian characters in Bend It Like Beckham? No, you're not. Now we have to get into Sikhism. I'm going to have to apologize to you because although I know a lot about history and religion, I am woefully uneducated in Sikhism. I did reach out to three temples in the Houston area and ask them if any of them wanted to come on to the Super 70 podcast to introduce Sikhism to my audience and shine a light on that religion for what I really suspect is a majority white Christian background. But unfortunately, none of them were interested. I do not know if they just didn't care to come on to the podcast with someone who didn't know anything about Sikhs or if they specifically found the film material to be problematic. There are many Sikhs that find this film offensive for several reasons, and I'll, I'll try to hit those before the end of the credits, but things are running pretty quick here. Now, Guru Nanak Dev, whose portrait hangs in the living room of the Bamras, is referred to by the Bamras as Bubaji. He lived in the 15th century, and by the time of his death in the mid-16th century, Sikhism found a foothold in the Punjab province in the north of India. In 1799, the Sikhs seized control of Punjab, and a Sikh Maharaja ruled Punjab until the second Anglo-Sikh War in 1848. I'm sorry, 1849. Now, don't let the name of that war fool you. That was the East India Tea Company acting on behalf of the British government. It went to an India to occupy it on behalf of colonial enterprise, and it murdered Punjabis until the Sikh Empire capitulated. The result was a Britain controlling and exploiting all of India for its own profit for the next century. That's a fact. That's not debatable. 
It's why some people in India think that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is a very racist film because of how it depicts Indians, Punjabis, and Sikhs, despite the enormous attention that Spielberg tried to put into it. And yes, Sikh soldiers come and save the day at the end of the Temple of Doom. Let's face it, India, Indy would be dead meat without them. But who is commanding them from on high? A white British soldier. Just because it's true does not mean it's not racist. Anyway, back to this annexation of the Sikh Empire, if you can call it that. The Brits recruited tons of Punjabis and Sikhs to help them run India. And there was a brutal uprising all over India 10 years later, which is very wild and very convoluted. And I'm not going to get into it, but the Sikhs were very helpful to the British in suppressing that rebellion. And as a result, the Brits saw the Sikhs as this very valuable ally and tool in upholding the empire. And Sikhs served in almost every colonial war for the next century, and 100,000 Sikhs served in the British Army in Europe during the Second World War. About 15% of the Indian Army today are made of Hindu Sikhs. And Sikh Punjabis make up about 20% of the officer corps. Sikhs underwent a diaspora after India's independence. The background to that is rather complicated, and you'll have to excuse this very condensed Reader's Digest version. When India left the British Empire, it included the modern state of Pakistan and Bangladesh. Now, there was an enormous amount of Muslims living in British India, millions. They did not want to live as a permanent minority in a Hindu state, and this led to an absolutely brutal civil struggle. This was not a war per se. There was no Pakistani militia that was squaring off with an Indian army, but it was the brutal butchering house by house by people who knew a Muslim lives here or a Hindu lives there. And it made Northern Ireland in 1978 look like a utopian society by comparison. The only thing the politicians could work out was to partition India and create two states, East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh and West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan. So there was a certain time period, I don't know what it was, it might have been a year, when the two countries basically told their collective populations, look, if you, want to, if you don't want to live in Pakistan, you better get your ass out now. And the Muslims too. They left India by the millions, and they went to live in East or West Pakistan. And the Sikhs who lived in East or West, they came to the new state of India, and a lot of them went to Punjab. And as it was, you can imagine, overcrowded as hell, and not to mention very conducive, not very conducive to growth. So hundreds of thousands of Sikhs left India over the next few decades. A very high percentage of those came to Great Britain. Now, if Jess is 20 years old in 2002, then she was born in 1982. She was born in Britain. So that means that her parents moved to Britain before that. Since Pinky was born in Britain and is her older sister by at least two years, we can assume the Bombers moved to Britain sometime in the 1970s, probably earlier in the decade. Mr. Bomber is a pilot for British Airways. He was most likely a pilot for Air India or Foop flew planes in the Indian Air Force before coming to Britain. It would make sense for him to have this skill before his immigration, as it would make him a more valuable candidate to the immigration service that let him in. The Sikh diaspora has been most successful in the UK, and UK Sikhs have the highest percentage of home ownership in any religious community, shockingly high, like I stated before. UK Sikhs are the second wealthiest religious group in the UK after the Jews, with a median total household wealth of £229,000 a year. Pays to be a pilot these days. Now, male Sikhs generally have Singh as their middle to last name, roughly translating to 
lion or prince, although not all Sings are necessarily Sikhs and vice versa. Female Sikhs have Kaur or princess as their middle or last name. Sikhs who have undergone the baptism by Khandi and an initiation ceremony now known as Amrit are from the day of their initiation known as Khalsa. Amrit Daddy Sikhs, and they must at all times have on their bodies the five Ks, the Kesh, the uncut hair, the Kara, the steel bracelet, the Kirpa, the dagger, Kachira, the cotton undergarment, and the Kanga, the wooden comb. Now, the turban and the beard mark Sikhs as distinctly and visually different in Western culture, and as a result, they're singled out for hate crimes. Sikh men in Western countries have been mistaken for Muslims or Arabs and ethnically Persian Afghanis, especially after the 9-11 attacks. Now, this shot is, of course, meant to exemplify everything about bending in the film. The teammates themselves are unified. When the bend comes, it goes over the wall and caught by the goalie. The game is going to show some parallels to what is happening at the wedding. While you see a workout on the field, you will see a workout on the dance floor. And while you see lines forming on the field, you will see lines forming on the dance floor. In fact, the coordination will be similar. While there are violations on the field, namely against Jess, we will see cultural violations at the wedding reception. Namely, Mrs. Bomber sees, namely what Mrs. Bomber sees in the bathroom. You will also see victory celebrations set to the tune of music. And really, when you get down to it, these are very similar things going on. The very next scene is probably the second most important of the film, as it is the metaphor that extends to the title and shows us everything that we want to know about what Chada is telling us about these two societies. Bending the rules gender norms, relationship norms, cultural norms, all rolled into one. This shot is, of course, meant to exemplify everything about bending in the film. The arch-conservative family is blocking Jess from her goals. As she bends the ball around them, she is very specifically trying not to hit them or harm anyone she loves and at the same time achieve her goals in life. Chada placed Pinky and her mother on the block line, but also three of her own relatives, including her own mother and two aunts. No one is able to miss this very on-the-face metaphor. It is literally right in front of you. And as the ball bends, professional tenor Tito Beltran sings one of his most famous arias written in the last century, Nessun Dorma, or Let No One Sleep. First, Chada, again, is showing us a high level of cultural diffusion. Saris are mixed with arias. Second, it alludes to Jess Mender's skill on the soccer pitch. She lets no one sleep. The opera Nassun Dorma is from Turandot by Giancomo Puccini. The tale is about the princess Turandot, whom, in order to marry, suitors must answer sphinx-like questions or be beheaded. The winner... Caliph sings the Nasun Dorma as he defeats the challenge and wins the princess, which are the high notes in the song we hear 
just as the ball passes the Bomarov family and goes into the net. Like Koloff, Jess, too, also wins. Luciano Pavarotti, widely known as the greatest tenor, if not the greatest opera singer of all time, sung Nissan Dorma at the 1990 World Cup, which captivated one of the largest TV audiences of all time. Pavarotti later released the song as a single all over the globe. And in the UK, it reached number two, as football fans immediately knew its popular relevance. Tito Beltran, the singer of this particular performance, is also an example of immigration. His mother is Swedish and his father is Chilean. Unfortunately, he raped an underage girl fan after one of his concerts in 2008. Having been convicted in court due to a close friend testifying against him, Beltran then served two and a half years in prison before resuming his musical career. This is a sad footnote to a film that serves such powerful moments to women. Here, the Paxtons contemplate having a gay daughter, and soon the Bomberos will contemplate having an independent daughter. Although what kind of reception Jess will get in America is unclear. Balbir Singh Sodi, a Sikh-American entrepreneur in Mesa, Arizona, was murdered in a hate crime in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. This was the first of several cases across the United States that were reported to the police as supposed acts of retaliation for the 9-11 attacks. Sodi, who had a beard and wore a turban in accordance with his Sikh faith, was profiled as an Arab Muslim and murdered by 42-year-old Frank Silva Roque, a Boeing aircraft mechanic at a local repair facility who held a criminal record for attempted robbery in California. Roke had reportedly told friends that he was, quote, going to go out and shoot some towel heads, unquote, the day of his attacks. Roke was sentenced to death, but was later commuted to life imprisonment for first-degree murder. The chaos that unfolds in the following scene is perhaps an overdramatic moment in which Mrs. Paxton has to come to terms with her own prejudice, not regarding Indians, but instead regarding homophobia. This cringy moment is reserved for white people, the masters of, as Jules had said before, embarrassing themselves. We know something is wrong when Mrs. Paxton even identifies Jules as wearing her breast trousers. The connotation of the trousers, or as we say in America, the pants, implies a masculine role for women who wears them. Since the days of Marlena Dietrich and the Blue Angel and Katherine Hepburn's entire career, women wearing pants has been controversial. Even in 1992, as Hillary Clinton, a lifetime career lawyer whose husband ran for president in 1992, pants and pantsuits drew the ear of the press and the right wing who see women in the workplace as a threat to their masculinity. Despite being a woman, Mrs. Paxton herself is very much like Mrs. Bomra. She is the enforcer of conservative ideals. And though she seemingly doesn't have hang-ups with Indians, she certainly sees homosexuality as a threat when she suspects that Jules and Jess are having an affair. Mrs. Paxton does unfortunately use the term, quote, your lot, unquote, in this scene when referring to Jess Mender's extended family. 
This could be interpreted as the same as, quote, you people, unquote, which is so famous in America after a white American businessman and presidential contender, H. Ross Perot, used it to, quote, unquote, praise the NAACP's advancement of civil rights for minorities when he ran for president in 1992. Mrs. Paxton should be careful. After all, this is a Sikh wedding, and who knows who's carrying a kirpan. The UK government exempted a kirpan from the list of banned knives in 2019. The UK passed an amendment by which Sikhs in the country would be allowed to carry kirpans and use them during religious and cultural functions. The bill was amended to ensure that it would not impact the right of the British Sikh community to possess and supply kirpans or religious swords. Similarly, the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund overturned a 1925 Oregon law banning the wearing of turbans by teachers and government officials in 2010. Here, Chada taps a common wordplay in English that has gone back decades. Lesbians are named after the island of Lesbos, where not legends or myth, but rather bullshit rumor held that there were no men. Lebanese is what you call an Arab Muslim or a Christian who is from Lebanon, a Mediterranean coastal country sandwiched in between Israel and Jordan. So not only does Mrs. Paxton have her sexualities wrong, she also has her nationalities and her religions wrong. I would imagine calling Sikh Lebanese would be as insulting as calling a Lebanese Sikhs, although Sikh is a religious identifier, not a national one, and vice versa. Sikhs can be anybody. Nimrata Niki Randawa was born in an immigrant Indian Punjabi Sikh parents in Pamburg, South Carolina in 1972. Her father, Ajit Singh Randawa, and her mother, Raj Kaur Randawa, immigrated from Punjab, India, where her father was a professor at the University of Delhi and her mother earned a law degree from the same university to British Columbia, where her father earned a Ph.D., they moved to South Carolina because he found a position as a tenured professor at Voorhees College in South Carolina, a historically black institution. Due to her middle name, everyone in the States called her Nikki Randawa. Randawa's brother served in Operation Desert Storm. She herself graduated from Clemson University with a degree in accounting. In 1996, she married Michael Haley. In 2004, Nikki Haley started three terms in the South Carolina legislature before being elected governor twice, the first Asian-American elected governor of any state. In 2017, President Trump appointed her ambassador to the United Nations, the first Asian-American to hold that post. She resigned the following year. She converted to Christianity in 1997, but apparently still participates in Diwali, the Celebration Festival of Light. This critical conversation with Jess and her parents in front of Bubaji can be read as a reverse intervention. While there are many performances to watch in the scene, the one that gets me is Anupam Kerr, the superstar of Hindi cinema who plays Mr. Bamra. Kerr has made over 200 feature films, though Bend It Like Beckham is derisively described in certain circles as Bali Light. Bali Light is usually used to refer to films about Indians produced in the West, regardless of the Indian component making them. 
Hindi critics point to this film and criticize, quote, a certain Anglicization of the film which occurs in Anglo-American spectators' minds because we associate it not with the British-based Indian director, Gurinder Chadha, or its star, Parminder Nagra, but rather with the white icon reference in its title, David Beckham, and the film's launching of a similar stellar career in film for its second lead actress, Kiera Knightley. Illustrative to this erasure of the film's Indian content in Western minds, Timothy Graney's 2012 book, Beyond Bend It Like Beckham, The Global Phenomenon of Women's Soccer, invokes Chada's film in its title, yet includes no discussion of the featured sport in India, includes little analysis of minority women's roles in soccer, and even downplays the sport's presence in the UK, blaming a 50-year ban in England for the relatively backward state of the women's game in the Queen's country. Admittedly, Michael Giordano asserts, the film's portrayal of a multicultural Britain is superficial, and women's soccer in India remained in a developmental stage at the turn of the millennium. In this incidence of Bali Light, the sports aspect of the film appeared to have trumped its narrative about diasporic Indian identities, at least in many Western minds. Unquote. I'm not so sure about this, folks. When I see the third act of Bend It Like Beckham, I see a shitload of Zeke's. And very few white people. Has Parminder Nagra gotten the short end of the stick in Western cinema? Well, that depends. She's not in five Disney films with Johnny Depp making a billion dollars a pop. That's true. But she was in ER for a whopping 129 episodes. Alcatraz for 13 episodes. The Blacklist for 21 episodes. She's also on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Fortitude, Intergalactic. I want you to take a poll and find out how many actors would love to have her career. I bet there's a lot. And I bet there's a lot more that would like five Disney films. Nevertheless, Bend It Like Beckham has been dismissed as a Billy Elliot for ethnic minorities. But I think this description just lumps all non-white people into the same film. And that's insulting to the rich cultural expression that you have in Beckham. It also ignores the impact. This film reached number one the first weekend and took two million at the box office. This was also the same spring when neo-Nazi fascists in Britain scored their most significant victories in local elections in the 1970s, and when noted racist Jean-Marie Le Pen came second in the French presidential election. And guess which right-wing anti-Semite just came in second in the last French presidential election against Emmanuel Macron? Marine Le Pen, his daughter. And I do suppose that you could say this did end up like Billy Elliot. Everything is resolved in the end, except, of course, Jess and Joe don't get to shag, at least not yet. Although she's bound to be back by Christmas, she says. Unbeknownst to the producers, the Women's Professional Soccer League that she went to collapsed about two years after Bend It Like Beckham became a hit due to lack of funding, which means a lack of fans. And anyway, now would be a good time for Jess to tell Joe that not only is she a virgin, but she's going to have to wait until a traditional Punjabi wedding before he knows all of her proper like. And where should we have the resolution of a film that is about immigration, cultural diffusion, and transitory existence? Of course, it should be the airport. Here we see Jess reliving the immigration experience of her parents. 
She wants to go to America for financial gains and to chase her dreams, the same reason her parents came to Britain. Jess Mender's future is like the airport, largely open-ended, and it can go anywhere. Jess becomes a symbol of immigration and freedom, the absolute fear of conservatives everywhere. As we race towards the credits, we see a very British movie turn very Hollywood very fast. Hatchets are buried, pasts are forgotten, and new friendships are started. Mr. Bomra tells his wife that now that Jess has chosen her past, it is up to God for her to be okay. The Bomras seemingly forget the slight of Mrs. Paxton showing up at Pinky's wedding and demanding her daughter's shoes back. Mr. Bomber seems to be doing a very good job of ignoring Joe snogging his daughter just a few feet behind him. Later, we're going to see Joe play cricket with Mr. Bomber, in which surely must be an overt attempt at getting on to his good side. This is going to be complete in super white sweaters typical of the sport and of the crying game. This is all fine and in keeping with the excellent film making that makes us forget that Jess and Jules never truly made up for their spat about Joe, but whatever. That whole conflict can just sort of go away. We don't know how it was resolved. All we know is that both girls are facing worse times. This magical resolution is then followed by a credit sequence showing a behind-the-scenes montage of the actors and the crew singing Bean and Mystery's remix of Hot, Hot, Hot. A most Hollywood ending. Could Bend It Like Beckham have ended any better? Possibly not, but it could have ended so much worse, like Dead Poet Society, another film about a kid defying his parents to chase his dream. The only controversial part of the ending was what some scholars have called the white reinscription that happens at the end of the film. After watching for an entire movie how lauded David Beckham is as a skilled footballer, we are treated to a cameo of both him and his wife, Victoria Beckham, as they enter Heathrow Airport from wherever their 14th home in the Mediterranean is, Malaga, Ibiza, Thera. This introduction of the soccer god himself threatens to pull the focus off the film and make it not about Jess and Jules' struggle against their family's nonsensical conservative values, but about the mindless state of celebrity. But, once again, I disagree. As Beckham is shot from a distance, and as Jules fawns over her Beckham from afar, she tries to get Jess Mender's attention that suddenly and provocatively her god has appeared, and I'm not talking about Bubaji. We instead see that Bubaji is relegated to a 2-inch by 3-inch picture that her parents have given her, so she can conveniently keep him in her wallet. And this is a commentary on a religion that I think is most profound considering how it ends. So what does Jess do? She turns her fixation from one white man to another, and that is certainly a take that will catch shit in the Indian reading of this film. But console yourselves in the idea that color is not such a big deal at the end of this film as it was in the beginning. That we can in fact get past these lines that divide us. After all, we've put them there to begin with. And remember, as we close with this wonderful film that explores cultural divides and pushes for class tolerance and shows us yet another airplane flying off from left to right, 
that whatever Joe is, white, Irish, Catholic, football player, we can all agree, can't we, that at least he's not a Muslim. Thanks for watching Bend It Like Beckham with the Super 70 Podcast. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdillandavis.com. Please write a positive iTunes review and a negative email at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. You can catch this music at Rosalind McPhail's website and on iTunes, rosalindmcphail.com. I'm Dylan Davis. You can catch me on Twitter at thatdillandavis for now. Thanks again. And next time, we'll see you on the road to Valhalla, my brothers.
be, of course, for those of you who don't know. I can't believe there's anyone who doesn't. Alu is the potato and gobi is the cauliflower. Okay, great. So that's all that done. Now, what I should really have done first, of course, is the onion, because that goes in first. And then I would have had more room, but you know what? I think I've got room here. So next up is the onion. When you're making a curry, one of the most important things is how you do the onions. And when you're making a meat curry, you have to put, chop the onions really finely and you have to really brown the onion. But with aloo gobi, you actually have to just make it translucent. Or as my mum says... Very light golden. Like yes. creamy. Yeah, yeah, creamy golden. So we were taught to do it like this. But I bet she's got something to say about this. Are these onions all right? Yes. Yes, but you have to do in the very small pieces now. See? <laughs> but this takes more time. Doesn't matter. It doesn't it does matter if you're busy. The more time you take, the more uh, tasty the food <laughs> is uh, cooked. Okay, so now we're ready to get on with the exciting bit. It's all coming together now. Hot, dry, and a bit of...